Welcome to the 10th episode of the Sand Dune Podcast. I am your co-host Hans Kathcart and I'm here with... Frank Sikrenitsky. Hello, everybody. This is our 10th episode. We've made it into the double digits, Frank. Uh, woo Congratulations. It's a great, great anniversary. Absolutely. Uh, folks, feel free to tweet us uh, at Sand Dune Podcast or send us emails, talk at sanddune.org. So Frank, uh, now in our 10th episode, I think the last one, number nine, was actually a really great example of what we want this podcast to be about. So this week, we might disappoint people by not spending the entire episode talking about transparency, but we will touch on all the things that we typically talk about. So what have you been up to? Well, I've been uh, buying Christmas presents for uh, various family members, getting Christmas cards out and getting hate from those people who uh, meant to get cards out but didn't. You made a really interesting Christmas card because I got it within like two days. Yeah, that that surprised me as I mailed it and you all the way across the country sent me a picture of it like two days later. I, I couldn't understand that because the mail is not fast here anymore. But yeah, I made a Christmas card um, with one of those AI engines. I, I took some photos of you know a forest and our Christmas tree and whatever else, and I passed it through a an AI art learning engine. In this particular case, I picked Van Gogh and it kind of did a starry night on the whole thing. And it looks really cool. Um, although on the back of the card, I did you know give credit to Van Gogh, meaning that was the original inspiration for the card and for the AI's learning and everything else. Um, so I thought that was that was a cool way to build a card. Yeah, but it looked really quite pretty. Thank you. So what have you been up to, Hans? Well, I've been doing a lot of programming in Swift. And one interesting news story that came out is that Apple has now released Swift Playgrounds 4, which is a version of their development tool that a lot of kids have been using. But you can now actually build a Swift Playgrounds app on the iPad and then release it all the way out to the App Store. I haven't done the whole uh, publishing out to the App Store just yet, but the other day I went and spoke with my uh, niece, who's seven years old, and we sat together and walked through a tutorial and helped her build her first Swift Playgrounds app. And it was a lot of fun. Oh, get them programming early. That's very cool. At the beginning of pandemic, we did a type of virtual babysitting and just got on Zoom with her. And we played around with Scratch. And that's like the real basic programming. And she did pretty okay, but she still was quite young. And so now she's seven and a half almost. And so she went through it and she knows how to use her iPad extremely well. So it actually was quite easy for me to help her out and, and do that. So that was a lot of uh, fun trying to go and go through a coding exercise with her. And I'm sure she'll probably call me again tonight and be like, hey, when are we going to finish the app? But that's uh, that's what we did. And we finished uh, the tutorial that uh, uh, Paul Hudson did, who is the same person who does the 100 Days of Swift UI course. Um, so I'll put a link in that in the show notes. That's very cool. And then the other thing, uh, a couple of episodes ago, we mentioned that I submitted a request to Amazon to get my history and those things came back much faster than I expected. So I have my whole Amazon history and currently going through it. And probably next episode, I'll talk about what I discovered on my history. But that's, uh, that's what I've been up to. Very cool. Well, I guess the subject we kind of want to launch into this week is picking up on a thread we started to unravel last week, which was transparency in terms of how one would document a meeting. Yeah, what happens at the end of a meeting how do you put into context what decisions were made, what was discussed, 
And I think one of the ideas we had was just every meeting gets completely recorded and then made available as a audio download. But I think that wasn't quite enough because you do want to try to figure out if the information can be put into a format that is easily accessed. So meeting notes, transcriptions, but even just the basic concept of like, what tools do you actually use to record meetings and turn them into some kind of useful data? Yeah, it's interesting because the construct of meeting minutes already exists, but that does take somebody sitting there thinking about what should be in them. And meeting minutes, if done formally, imply that the meeting was kind of held with a structure. So the way I was looking at it was technology is going to help us make things more transparent because it's going to allow us to do more with the data that we have in front of us. And what I mean by that is we can have a device on the desk listening to everything, building a machine learning model about everything that it's hearing, and also able to do the minutes transcription, also able to do the understanding of who's speaking and what their position is and what their authority level is so that when the report is collated automatically, it reflects accurately, you know, who at what level made what decisions, who discussed what and who raised objections, who was in a position to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the difference being, though, that if you did that in a meeting today, just plop down a big live smart microphone, a lot of people would get freaked out by that because the way companies run these days, it's everything's a secret. You don't know where the data is going or we're going to use it against you. And, you know, you better just clam up. This needs to be done in a very open and transparent way saying, this is what we're recording. It knows who you are, but you can go in and not unlike your Amazon history, go see, here's what you said. Here's what the machine heard. Here's what the model was doing with what you put into it. So that instead of it being completely opaque, the flow of data from you through to the company and its record keeping is you know, completely there for you to see. So how will also, be in every meeting room? Yes, how will be in every meeting room. I think What's important about that is we kind of need to grab that by the horns now, because whether we want it or not, Hal is going to be in the boardroom, Hal's going to be in the coffee room, Hal's going to be in the conference room. Kind of grabbing the issue by the horns now and saying that everything Hal does needs to be open and transparent for us to see, I think is an important step and there, an important thing to get into the conversation now. Are there tools today that already allow you to do this kind of stuff? Because I've haven't really seen that myself. Bits and pieces like Microsoft Teams will, you know, do transcripts. And I think Google Meet does, but if you're not recording the meeting, it's kind of ephemeral. It's just like a closed caption thing. And I'm sure you could take a meeting and feed it into a variety of ML systems and have it kind of, you know, figure out who's who. But I don't know if there's one that's specifically built to sit in a meeting room and do this sort of thing. Because I think the concept is kind of scary right now, unless it's coupled with some policy and some introduction. I think there'd be a very negative reaction to it. Alexa for meetings. Well, yeah. I mean, you go into someone's office and Alexa's flashing red because they've turned it off. I mean, that's like three quarters of all the offices I've ever gone in. <laughs> and actually, that's what my desk is right now, mostly because I don't want her piping up in the middle of a podcast. So then do we, in addition, I mean, obviously, if the technology is there and it can recognize the speaker and it can transcribe it. We can have meeting minutes and they can be nicely organized the way that you might have a government event. Like I remember back that 
you know, one of the first things that any kind of meeting that has been well organized with meeting notes happens is you review the meetings from the previous meeting and you sec, uh, authorize that, that 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 is the final meeting note. Now, I'm not suggesting that every single meeting that is ever done within this company is going to have that level of formality to it, but it would be good to have the decisions that are made in the meeting and information that is brought to the meeting during the discussion organized in some fashion so that later on another party, either somebody working at the company or maybe somebody outside the company wanting to look at it, hopefully not all the attorneys, but (laughs) that'll happen no matter what, could actually look at this information in a more organized fashion. And perhaps even being able to be in another future meeting saying to the AI, hey, I remember we talked about this six months ago. What did we decide? And the AI is able to quickly look at all that information and be like, oh, you know, Hans, you made the following suggestion. And then you're like, oh, I know I remember. That's a, that's a great use case. I'll, I'll one-up you on the interesting use cases. So if it's, just, let's say, a software development firm, just for argument's sake, and it's a pretty big one, and they have a bunch of projects going on, and you know, senior management's meeting about deadlines and shipping stuff and everything else. If the machine learning AI is listening in on everything that's going on, including, let's say, you know, the daily scrum stand-ups and um, the bug review meetings and all the rest of the stuff that's going on, the AI would eventually become capable of raising a flag in a project management sense, saying in a senior staff meeting, I have some indications that the dates might slip, which is something, to be honest with you, in a healthy, good culture company, there's going to be no problem communicating that up. But it would be interesting if the AI would start to give hints of what it's hearing around the place. And would that be too creepy? Or could you look at it as saying, hey, yeah, there's something to that. That's pretty wild. So the CEO of the company or whoever the head of the product management organization could say to Hal, hey, how's this particular project going? And even if his or her direct reports had told him or her that everything's fine, Hal would be like, well, I'm not so sure that's the case. Yeah, that's interesting. Or if it started to learn enough about projects in general, maybe it's able to talk to the people in the stand-up going, you guys are deviating from standard practice. But I just think it would be interesting if the machine were aware of what was going on. This is going to happen now. That's, That's kind of my driving force behind it is this will happen. Right. right now, the machine's already in the room with us. The machine's already making decisions for us. Not all of the decisions. It's not strong AI, but half the information that we get to make decisions, to make decisions about investing in companies, investing in stocks, creating products, doing sales, other completely other things like you know, kids getting admitted to college, you know, financial aid, stuff like that. These are all touched by giant. ML systems that have been, you know, sold to them for the express purpose of answering every single one of those questions. I'm kind of starting to see our role as needing to raise our hands and say, this is what the world needs to look like when this stuff soaks the rest of the way in. Because otherwise it's going to be super creepy and it's going to be perceived as the machine is just tattling on, right? So there was a seminar or session that was done where some people got together and discussed the future of computer AIs. And during the debate, the debate they had included an AI 
who had read a bunch of information, including all the entries on Wikipedia and Reddit. And I can only imagine what that AI thought of humans, but <laughs> they, they had the AI also participate in that particular debate. And they asked the AI question. And one of the questions came, you know, that was, I don't remember what the exact question was, but the answer that the AI came back with, and I'll quote this directly, is the ability to provide information rather than the ability to provide goods and services will be the defining feature of the economy of the 21st century. The AI said that. Well, which is super convenient for the AI. <laughs> yeah. That's job security right there. You know, so I guess AIs worry about job security. That's what we can infer. I'm just kidding. So we already have debates then in that are happening where AIs are being invited. And like you said, when you have Alexa in the room and you ask small questions, the narrow AI will help you. But I think to your point, if you have lots and lots of narrow AI systems that are helpful in different points, then you will be in a meeting within the next five years where you're constantly asking for the participation of the AI in the discussion, or maybe for the AI to sit there and correct you if you say something that is inaccurate. I, I agree. And I think within the next two years, it'll be there quietly judging you. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, and, and on one hand, it's hilarious because it's like, hey, that's the way the world's going. But I think technology is really starting to increase its complexity so quickly that we need to lay down terms of engagement. And it's really more terms of engagement between us and, let's say, employers or us and people we get services from, because they're the ones who are buying and deploying the AI. So it's not like it just comes in out of the rain and sits down on the desk by itself, right? Somebody bought it and integrated it and turned it on and pays for it. But there, I think, needs to be rules of engagement as to how this stuff can be used. And I think transparency is the answer to how you can have such powerful technology sitting on the desk doing what it was designed to do but still have the buy-in of the people around it because they understand what's being done rather than it being a big secret and everybody being very quiet because if they say the wrong thing, maybe they'll get vaporized. Right. Well, Apple just announced that they are postponing their return to office date again because of COVID. And what I think in that regard is that, you know, as we go back into the offices, what is going to be the standard thing in, in a conference room. Now, I, I don't know that we really want Hal listening in to every space within an office. I think that might be really tricky, but certainly in office buildings where there's conference rooms, the conference rooms are going to be mic there today already with video conferencing equipment. So it would be trivial to let the AI listen in on those meeting rooms and to have a little you know red light go on whenever the AI is listening. Should, should it be red or do you think from a usability standpoint, we should come up with a different color for the AI is, is listening? Yeah, I think red is has a negative connotation due to, you know, our famous friend from the 1960s. Alexa's color is a, a blue color and Google's is typically white, although it can turn rainbow colored. So it's it's pretty. Everyone I think is avoiding red. Who knows? Maybe it's a it's a color, maybe it's a, you know, an icon. So that's what we have to look forward to. <laughs> well, 
I'd like to control that conversation rather than just, you know, be the, be the victim of it. You know, maybe that's just a, a pipe dream, but I think we can both see it materializing. And like I said, somebody's got to write the rules of engagement here. I smell a blog post about this is the color and icon we should use when the AI is listening. Actually, that's a much cooler way to own the conversation is to own the trademark on the, uh, on that cool icon. That would be a much more direct way to get the attention of the people who buy this stuff. That's, That's right. brilliant. <laughs> All right. Speaking of brilliance, should we talk about crypto this week? A little bit. No. Yeah, no. Um, okay. Just a little tiny bit. Well, so this happened last month. So it's kind of old news. So I'm not going to define it as being in the news. But the Sotheby's had an auction for a the only privately held copy of the United States Constitution, and it went up for auction. And a group of people decided to get together using, I think it was the Ethereum blockchain, to try to raise a bunch of money so that they could be the ones to win it. I'll spoil the ending. They didn't win it. They didn't win it by a little bit, but it was still a well over $30 million transaction that uh, a different uh, investor, I should call them, actually winning that. But the funny thing about this article was I really thought that this smelled a lot like the movie The Producers, where they put on a play that is meant to lose money. And they're meant like, and I thought, okay, they did this in order to not win this bid, but still manage to take the money away. So maybe in the, in the movie, The Producers, of course, the, 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 the play turns into a raging success because of how ridiculous it is but it's still i i don't know what the end story to this story is and whether or not all the investors got their money back yeah i'm not sure either i know that the guy who bought it kind of made the story a non-story because it was rich guy buys historical artifact which he's going to loan to a museum but <laughs> if i you know if i had to guess and i actually have read the article um I'm guessing what they did was they didn't actually collect all the money, but they probably created a, a digital a contract on the Ethereum blockchain that would execute in the event that their bid won. And then the money would you know, flow into wherever it needed to go. I mean, that's how I would have done it. That would have been the fair way to do it. Um, but I'll have to take a look and see just exactly how they structured it. Yeah. I will admit my brain is full of crypto too much. And I just for the record, I am I'm like one of the people who is consuming brain space because I'm so against it. But I don't know. I'm not an expert on it. No, that's okay. It can live rent-free in your head. That's fine. <laughs> All right. Uh, finally, there was an article and in the pre-show we debated whether or not we would actually talk about this, but let me see if I can bring some sense to it. There's this concept of Web 3.0 and Web 3 as there was Web 2.0. And we have some opinions about this, right, Frank? Boo. <laughs> so I read an article that I think it's just a blog post, someone trying to make a big deal out of it. Um, I talked a little bit about the history of what they thought each of the phases of the web was, but even the first time Web 2.0 came out, I thought it was kind of nonsense because the web and the internet are just applications out there. So I don't even know where the first versioning of this thing came from. Do you know, Frank? I think somebody first used the term in 1999 and then it disappeared. And then the O'Reilly publishing people started using it. 
at one of their trade shows like five years later. And I guess it got kind of sticky because it let people kind of say, hey, I'm doing something different. I'm doing the 2.0 or, or whatever. And I'm really not a huge fan of that sort of thing because you should kind of be able to tell people what you're doing and not give people the buzzword version. So, you know, if you're doing decentralized finance, say, hey, I'm doing DeFi, I'm doing this, I'm making this procedure better in the financial world, instead of saying, I'm doing some Web3, man, it's a marketing term more than it is anything else. And Web 1.0 was just, you know, once we had 2.0, they just went and retroactively said, well, all that crap that came before 2.0 must be 1.0. Yeah, and I'm bringing this up now because you know, we're, we're recording this podcast on the 16th of December, and 26 years ago, yesterday uh, was the 1.0 release of the Netscape Navigator browser. And I'll remember that moment, uh, unfortunately. It wasn't actually, though, my first web browser that I ever used because I did also use Mosaic. But I believe the very first web browser I ever saw was the next step of WWW browser on the next OS, which was a thing that Steve Jobs had created. What do you remember which first browser was that you used? Oh, it was definitely NCSA Mosaic. And I remember seeing that in 93, very late. I yes. think that's when I saw it because yes. we uh, we started publishing the magazine, the Trincolor Journal on the web. And we we had to worry about what was a Mosaic. I mean, Netscape was the new stuff by that point. Uh, we yeah. had been doing it in HyperCard until then. So then you were using that for at least a a year before Netscape even came. Well, there was the 0.9 version of Netscape that I think people were using before that date. But uh, so all these version numbers, I mean, in software, we don't see it as much anymore because updates to your app just happen. They, they don't they don't get versioned. But this whole idea of versioning the web is dumb. Yeah, I, I happen to agree. It gives it gives it gives away the high ground and it gives you another buzzword to talk about because if somebody wants to come in and start talking about web 3.0 they're kind of sucking all the oxygen out of the room and if you want to talk on their terms you're not telling your story you're telling their story and honestly these terms are so vague anyway that they could mean anything things that happen on the internet are in my view like programming functions like if your app like spotify does something it's it's a function of the internet right and it's not everybody's using it Maybe people use it a lot. Maybe use, people use it a little. And if you introduce some new thing like crypto or like the idea of having this blockchain technology used for other things, it's just a function that happens to be used over the internet. And you know, it doesn't have to be suddenly mashed together in some obscure thing. So I don't know. I, I just wanted to complain about it. So <laughs> I'm, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, and I can take it a little further. Although I completely agree with your analogy that you know the internet is basically one giant operating system on which everything kind of runs, and that versioning it's kind of dumb. But people have been versioning other things, and people have been talking about HR. People have been talking about Work 2.0. I mean, since before the pandemic, you know, we were starting to talk about hybrid and remote. I remember the last company you know I was at, we were talking about. Again, pre-pandemic, you know, hiring people into remote roles instead of hi- you know hiring people locally, which was much more expensive, and that was Work 2.0. And there's another company that likes selling Industry 4.0, and they're <laughs> you know 
back revving all the way. They're retconning all the way to, I think, you know, pre-steam engine with that one, you know, because it makes them sound so smart. Instead of just people explaining, here's the innovations I'm making to the world right now. I think that's the story people should be telling rather than trying to like slide it under somebody else's marketing umbrella. What's the innovation that you're that you're doing? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think work 2.0 seems to be the thing that has now happened. It's amazing to think that we are almost two years into this work from home pandemic thing. And uh, that certainly has changed changed the world quite a bit. Now we're seeing this kind of tug of war where things are getting better and things are looking not so good and looking better and people are getting sent home and back and home and back, I think is only going to reinforce that hybrid work model. As somebody who worked for seven years from home before the pandemic, I will say that I got used to it, but I don't necessarily think that all of my colleagues got used to working with me remotely, although everything worked fine. But now for them, it was different. And I think we will now that it's been more than just a couple of months, but it's been years. I think we will come back to the office in a very different way. And to a large part, you know, hey, three days a week, you work from home kind of thing. Uh, I think that's going to stick. And it'll be interesting what that does to the economy as all. My prediction was always that people were just going to miss the socialization to the point where that once it was over, everyone would run outside and stay outside for a generation. (laughs) after being cooped up for a year. But unfortunately, you know, having it just end isn't the way this stuff works. So yeah, it's going to be more complicated. And you're right. We're going to have an entirely new relationship with work going forward. It was adorable at the beginning in the first month when people were like, oh, it's going to be so bad being at home. And they organized little social happy hours. And I joined some of those things going like, hey, guys, I've worked from home for seven years. I've not needed this. It's cool. It's interesting. But come on, guys. But yeah, now it's two years later and we're uh, we're having to continue to adapt. But I, I would expect that this uh, work from home thing will go on for a while and like a lot of these things, like you said, they, uh, they, they change and they are different than we expect. So that's the end of our podcast. Happy holidays, everybody. And we will talk to you again next week. So happy holidays and y'all have a good rest of the week. Happy holidays, everyone. The information provided in this podcast is not intended to constitute legal, financial, health, mixological or spiritual advice all content is for entertainment purposes only listeners should contact their attorney financial advisor doctor bartender or guru respectively to obtain advice regarding particular life matters none of this is our fault no animals were injured in the making of this podcast although frank hit hans in the head with a typewriter it is a story for another time copyright 2021